0: This podcast is brought to you by Robert Levine, the author of a newly updated paperback edition entitled Stranger in the Mirror, The Scientific Search for the Self. Please listen to podcast number 673, where Robert and Greg discuss his new book, Stranger in the Mirror. The book takes on The deeper questions of who we really are, from the perspective of biology, neuroscience, virtual reality, psychology, and many other fields. It does a great job of challenging our assumptions and leaves the reader with questions to ponder and new horizons to explore regarding this thing we call the self. I encourage you to listen to podcast number 673 with Robert Levine about his new book, Stranger in the Mirror. For more information, please visit www dot boblevine.net to read his blog and to avail yourself of resources such as videos and articles by Robert. Thanks
1: for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And today joining me from Toronto, Ontario, Canada is Drew Dudley. And Drew has a new book out called This Is Day One, a Practical Guide to Leadership that matters. Some of you may have seen his um, TEDx talk, which has been seen by millions at this point. I actually was looking at it last night. What do you got over 3 million views? 3.8 million views? Like uh, I
2: stopped. I stopped looking. I thought that uh, the more often you look, the more people could. I, the more I felt like I was being sort of vain going in and checking how many views <laughs> there were. So I promised myself I wouldn't look anymore because, well, however many it is, I know that that video of a lemon rolling down the street got about ten times that many in twenty four hours. So oh, well, I like to keep
1: like to stay humble on that. It 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 humble makes you humble, right? Yeah. Well, Uh, Drew, for my listeners, uh, first time, they don't know much about you, but Drew is the former director of one of the largest university leadership development programs in Canada at the University of Toronto. Uh, Drew helped some of the world's largest and most dynamic organizations in the world discover, define, and deliver on their core leadership values. As the CEO of Day One Leadership, as he writes in his book, it was hard for him to actually give up the day job at the university with the paycheck. His clients have included some of the world's most dynamic companies, including McDonald's, Kohl's, Hyatt Hotels, Procter Gamble, J.P. Morgan Chase, and over 75 colleges and universities. He's spoken to over 250,000 people on five continents, been featured in the, the Huffington Post, Radio America, Forbes.com, TEDx, as I said, the TED Talk, And it was voted one of the 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all time. Been viewed by millions, as I said. And Drew is shamelessly addicted to the West Wing, randomly raps Hamilton lyrics, and has, with his friends, referred to an embarrassing, largely stuffed Penguin collection for a grown man. Well, that's an interesting thing. Penguin collection. And you can find him uh, and the book, uh, two websites I'm going to mention right now is www.drewdudley.com, and the other one is www.book.drewdudley.com. Well, Drew, this book is personal. It's about leadership, but it's about the leadership in all of us, and I think that's what you do differently. Obviously, I think you're known for your lollipop story, but one of the things you may not be known for is your own challenges, uh, sobriety, bipolar, weight gain. And you stated that it all began one day. Can you tell us a bit about this past, because much of this you're beyond, and why you're so passionate about each of us embracing
2: one day? Well, the idea uh, behind day one, like you said, it came when uh, two things collided what I was teaching at the university and what I was experiencing in my life. And the philosophy behind day one in large part was informed by one of the biggest battles I had in my life, which was uh, alcohol addiction. And one of the things that I learned in recovery is if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, you have to choose not to have a drink today. And that behavior is non-negotiable. You can't you can't do that only if you have time, like after you empty your inbox or go to all your meetings. You can't have a drink today. And then you have to treat every single day for the rest of your life as if it's your first day of recovery. So what happens is, the great thing about day ones is that they have these inherent attributes. They are connected to commitment, to excitement, and to forgiveness. So you're, you're so excited whenever you start something, you're committed to it, and if you screw up on your first day, that's okay. Everybody does. You can restart. But if you got 25 years of doing something in, that doesn't matter if you don't choose to do it today. And I started to realize that everything that we wanted to do in this world was connected to that same idea. A voyage to mental health, a voyage to physical health, uh, to overcoming addiction, to developing your leadership, all comes down to this idea. What are the non-negotiable behaviors that have to happen every day of that voyage? Like, there's lots of things you have to do on different days, but there's these simple, single things that you have to do every day. And then you have to keep repeating those no matter what else is on your plate that day. And what so are, the idea What
1: are some of those, Drew? What would you leave our listeners with here today that's real tangible that mm-hmm. you would say they can walk away from this interview and go, ah, wow, that was really cool, uh, what Drew Dudley said about leadership, my own leadership?
2: Yeah. And, and the idea with leadership is you say, OK, what are the core leadership behaviors that I want to, to make happen on day one? If you were building yourself into the person and the leader that you wanted to be and you got to go back and start on day one, what would be non-negotiable? Now, what the book talks about is exactly how to customize that for you, because what those behaviors are, are different for each person because the values that each person have is, are different. The whole concept of this is day one is to take you through a process that says, your leadership happens when you identify your day one leadership behaviors and you commit to doing them every day. Then it helps you say, these are my values and these are the behaviors that I need to undertake. So it's very personal. For if you want the starter kit, and that's the thing about the book is it's supposed to be a starter kit. It's supposed to be simple. It's supposed to give you a step-by-step process, whether you've never thought of yourself as a leader or whether you're already a CEO. The starter kit for me, is that every day I need to make sure that I do at least one thing that embodies the values of impact, courage, growth, empowerment, class, and self-respect. And no matter what else I'm doing each day, I need to be able to identify specific behaviors that were that were key to those things. What the book does is it helps the reader figure out what their values are, and then it actually helps them, give them a process for how they live those each day. So that's where leadership starts on day one, by saying, these are the non-negotiable behaviors. I wrote the book to help people figure out what they are for them.
1: Well, and you did a great job, by the way, for my listeners. The book is an easy read. Uh, there's there's questions in it. It gets you to reflect. Um, it really is well done. But I have a question for you, because you talk about this in your TED talk. and it's really about this concept of a camera following you around, right? And I've always said this to people because this is this podcast show has been a love. It isn't something that I earn a lot of money off of, hardly any at all, to be honest with you. But I say to people, if there was a camera following you around uh, for a couple of days, and then they played back that video, like you say, in your uh, TED Talk, what would they observe? And then you say what are the three I think it was three main things that they would see about you? So if you would comment to our our listeners about this concept and what you really are kind of looking for those qualities, those values that people take around with them all day long and what are people going to recognize?
2: Yeah, the premise there is that your values are defined by how you act not what you say. And the idea is is that when I just ask people to identify their values, they generally don't give me the right answer. And what I mean by that is that when we actually take them through some of the activities in the book, which are designed not to just ask you about your values, but actually surface them through activities, they discover there's a disconnect between what they said they stand for and what their experiences and behaviors say they actually do stand for. So the idea was, I want people to reflect on if someone followed you for 30 days, so they see a lot of your interactions. They see everything. And you had no idea. At the end of those 30 days, if I ask that person, what are the three most important values this person stands for? What? And the way I say that is, what three values do they pivot to when they have to make the biggest decisions in their lives? Because when I say values, I'm not just talking about words that sound good. Values are criteria for decision making. Your values are what you turn to when you have to decide which option to pick. You hold the options up next to your values and you use those to make your decisions. And the big premise of the book, and and this doesn't just, it's not the book, this is from 15 years of working with people, is that when I ask most people, what values do you pivot to when you have to make a big decision? They don't know. And the challenge that means is that when you make decisions in life, You're renegotiating how you make them every single time. The bonus and what leaders do is they establish, hey, these are what I stand for. These are the values I'm committed to. And then they use them every time they have to make a decision. And even successful people aren't doing that because right now the criteria we generally use to make decisions is, all right, what's going to avoid the most consequences right now? That is generally the criteria that most people on the planet are using to make decisions right now. You look at the options and you say, which one is going to cause me the fewest problems right now? What leaders do, and it's harder, is because we know what those values are, we always turn to those values and say, which one of these options is most consistent with these values? And the challenge is that sometimes that option sucks. You know, it costs you money, it costs you a relationship, it costs you jobs, but It is the decision you're happiest you made five years from now. And the reason I ask people to think about someone following them around, and I ask anyone listening to do it as well, is because they get to judge your values based on the decisions that you make. And if you're not thinking about what values are most crucial to you, and if you haven't clarified them, you actually don't use them to make decisions. So when you actually live your values, it's usually an accident. And that's why I want to get people thinking about those. If we create value clarity, we create clarity on decision-making, and you tend to make decisions that are consistent with what good leaders do.
1: Let me ask you this. Okay. Um, obviously, this podcast goes worldwide, and without putting too much commentary on this, or we can or we can't, it's up to you, but you know, we're living in a world right now of very disjointed leaders, Okay, mm. uh, leaders here in the U.S., uh obviously we can point to leaders all throughout the world and what you just said about values it doesn't seem to be resonating i'm going to say especially here in the united states i'm not going to point to trudeau in canada or any of the other people but this is kind of the zinger of the question do you believe that there is a breakdown in the kind of moral constitution of values of many of the leaders of our free world.
2: Yes. Okay. Now, that gets asked me a lot, especially if you're a leadership educator. And I had to stop taking Q&As back in the fall of 2016 because it always pivoted to politics. Uh, it like, and here's the thing. I don't talk about politics. I talk about leadership. And they're not the same thing. The challenge is that we often teach them as the same thing. The big difference is this: those people aren't leaders, and that people can argue with that. But I think the problem is is that we give the title of leader to anybody who has influence. What we do is that they're catalysts. Now, a catalyst creates action; it cre- it, it generates something new, and all leaders are catalysts, but not all catalysts are leaders. And so, what I think is really important, because I when I was talking to students and when I was doing Q and A's, I kept getting asked, well, what about these people who have power and they do bad things? What about these individuals who, you know, they've broken down their values and and, and yet they're leaders? And I think the thing is, is that we're treating them as bad leaders or a different type of leader. And I think what we need to do is create an entirely new term for them. Because if we call them leaders as well, just a different type, what we start doing to young people is look, However you get to that position, whether you do it the right way or you do it the wrong way, you still get the same title. You still get seen as powerful and important. So what I try to say is that those individuals who are actively doing things to limit people's rights, that are actively doing things that harm others, that are making decisions not based on what is going to add value to other human beings, but on what is going to benefit them personally. They are not leaders. They are what I call catalysts for harm. And that, I think, is important so that we can actually create a title that recognizes the reality that there are people with power and there are people with influence, but we shouldn't be calling them leaders. Leadership is catalysts. Leaders are catalysts in the expansion of capacity for other human beings, an expansion of their rights, an expansion of their opportunities, uh, of their skills, of their knowledge, their confidence and their self-worth. But that's a leader however if you lead in a way that limits any of those things people's rights opportunities skills knowledge confidence self-worth yes you are a, a catalyst yes you are a person who causes things to happen but you are not a leader i call you a catalyst for harm and so that's how i divide the difference between the leadership i talk about and what those individuals are doing i claim it's not leadership and by calling it leadership i think we diminish leadership. But yeah, we have to acknowledge they have power. Here's the way I look at it. And I didn't mean to cut you off there, my friend. In, in politics, the addition of fear is used to win. In leadership, the removal of fear is used to succeed. And if you want to know whether someone's a leader or a catalyst for harm, what you do is you ask, are they using fear to win or are they removing fear to succeed? That's how you tell the difference.
1: I think that's a wonderful way to put it. And it's, I mean, if all, if that is all my listeners got from this podcast, that's huge. Because the reality is, you know, I think it was Mother Teresa or Gandhi. uh, Those people I still look at is amazing leaders. And, you know, she said, if you can't be for something, why be against something? And I think that, you know, you've studied all the great leaders. But, you know, you ask the questions of your audiences. Why do we matter? You frequently get what you said was a dumbfounded look on the faces of the audience. You state that much of this is due to conditioning. You know, and we're little kids. We don't have that. We could probably answer that question. But we've been pretty conditioned. What's happened to our belief in ourselves as leaders in your estimation?
2: I've had people tell me I'm hard on the education system, and I'm okay with that because I think the education system is one of the most powerful, important, and empowering systems we have. But we do have to acknowledge that it can also be one of the most dangerous and restrictive because it does have these untaught lessons. And when I talk about asking people why they matter, I'll say this to your listeners. Go, if you have kids, ask them that question, why do you matter? And what I found is kids under the age of five give you these incredible answers to that, like things that melt your heart. But once they get above five, they really struggle with the answer. And I started to realize it's this. When we send our kids away to school, you know, the age of four or five, they stop believing that why they matter is up to them to determine. And what it is supposed to be done is it's supposed to be evaluated externally because you start grading people. And you start, when you start grading people, they start to realize they're being ranked and that there's differential rewards depending on where you fall in the ranking, right? And so what happens is, and this isn't anybody telling kids they don't matter, although that does happen sometimes. What this is, is kids realizing that if they're gonna get pats on the back, if they're going to be celebrated, it's because they please other people. It's because they please teachers, it's because they please coaches, and eventually, because we all spend 20 years of our lives The most formative years in our lives going through this is we become dependent on this external validation and we stop bothering. We don't feel like we have the right to determine that we matter because who am I to say I matter when I'm a C student? Who am I to say I matter when I'm a janitor, right? Because look at how much I've been rewarded externally. That's why it's such a challenge because ultimately the day one process that I talk about in the book is about showing people a process to give them, themselves daily evidence that they matter because if you say this is my value as a person it's what i want to stand for here is my plan for actually live doing actions that live up to that and then at the end of the day you can specifically see when you did one of those things at the end of the day i can point to specific things i did that had impact and courage and encourage growth and empowerment and class and self-respect. At the end of the day, even my worst days, even the days where everything outside of my control blew up in my face, I can still, on those days, look and see that I gave myself evidence that I mattered. Sometimes it's not much in the face of what kind of crappy day it was, but I always get that. And that's what the whole process is about, is it's supposed to push back against the idea that for 20 years of our lives, we were taught that the rewards that are going to make us look good and are going to make people proud of us have to be delivered externally. And the problem is that we never unlearn it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's first, true.
2: Yeah. First time I ever asked a student, uh, he said, well, I, I don't matter yet. That's why I'm working so hard.
1: Well, and I started and I to
2: realize it, that we're doing that. A lot of us are living our lives like that.
1: Yeah. And I think it also goes to the fact of, of self-esteem. Um, obviously, look. You talk about this in the book, and you're quite open about it. I mean, you said sobriety was a big one, your alcoholism, your uh, mental issue, bipolar, your weight. You've lost 100 pounds. Um, You know, look, this all comes down to self-worth, doesn't it? And you did a big dive personally into figuring that out to get where you are today. And all those required, all those action steps required you, Drew, to become your own leader. You know the one day, as you said, and so that breaks breaks open the egg and says, you know, this is really me. I'm I'm bare. Uh, I'm willing to bare my soul here and tell what's going on. And you tell a great story um, about a girl when you're coming out of the university, and you influenced her, and you don't even remember influencing her, and it's your famous kind of moment on the TED talk about the lollipop moment. And I think it would be a good story. Uh, to tell our listeners, because it really does reflect the essence of not only who you are, but the difference that anybody can make at any time, and they don't really know that they're doing it. Hmm.
2: Yeah, there's a big. The book I wrote the book because I was tired of watching how many great leaders didn't see themselves as such, and I came to realize that the vast majority of the leadership on the planet was coming from people who didn't see themselves as leaders. And it's because they were ignoring stuff that really was leadership. And I was like that. Uh, I, when I went into university, as a really high-performing student, I saw leadership as this tiny club that not everyone can or should get into. And so what you needed to do was be more impressive than other people so that you got access to the club. And once you got there, there was more money, and there was more respect, and there were more opportunities. And that's how I thought of leadership, and the, the moment you're referencing started a process that has really led to this book. And it was a young woman who came up to me as I was leaving the university to tell me that she remembered the first time I met her, and, or she met me, and it was four years earlier, and it was on her first day of university, and she was standing in line, terrified, because she said it was so noisy, and I was so convinced that I was from too small a town, that I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't pretty enough, that I was gonna get eaten by this place. And she said, I just decided I had to quit. I couldn't do it. And she said, it was like those big decisions in your life when you decide to quit, all of a sudden, this feeling of peace, like you know it's the right call. And she said, I turned to my parents to say, take me home. They had told me that if I did, they'd still love me. And she said, but before I could do it, you came out of this building. And you're wearing a stupid hat and you were handing out lollipops trying to promote this charity you were doing. And you got to us standing in line and you smiled at the guy next to me and you looked at me and you held out this lollipop to this guy. And you said, you were stuck in line next to a beautiful woman for two hours now. You need to talk to her. Give her this lollipop, break the ice. And she said he was so embarrassed and he wouldn't look at me. He just held out this lollipop, just absolutely mortified and so I took it because he, he looked like he was so upset and as soon as I did you told my parents look at that it's your little girl's first day away from school her first day away from home and already she's taking candy from a stranger and of course she said everybody just lost it everybody just started to howl and she said for some reason in this moment where you made that stupid joke something in my mind changed and I said okay don't quit today you can quit tomorrow. And then somebody the next day did something else that made her make the same decision to put it off for one day. And then she said, I never did quit. I graduate in a few weeks. But before I left, I had to come up and tell you, even though I've never spoken to you in the four years since it happened, you've been such an incredibly important person in my life. And I wanted to say good luck. And then she walks off. And like you don't just drop that story on somebody and walk away. And so I'm standing there, I'm just flattened, and she comes back and she says, you really should know this too, I guess. I have been dating that guy for four years since you introduced us that morning in line. And then a year and a half later, the two of them invited me to their wedding and she married the guy. And I think what drives so much of what I try to talk about in the book and all of my work is that I don't remember that. Like, I do not and that kind of impact on another human being to introduce them to their husband right uh, is maybe the biggest the biggest moment of leadership in my life, and i don 't remember it mm-hmm. and it, it reminded me and it 's what i 'm trying to remind individuals with this book is that we are socialized and educated into trying to achieve and acquire things so that people look at us like we 're leaders, and perhaps more importantly, so we look at ourselves as leaders that we lose sight of a really essential fact. The primary determinant of how people feel about us and how we feel about ourselves is how we behave on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. That is all that matters, how we behave on a daily basis. So the fact that when we evaluate our leadership, we are not doing it daily, we are doing it over blocks of time. What have I achieved and to where have I risen over the last month or year or five years or over the 35 or 40 years I've been alive? That's how we evaluate our leadership. My argument with this book is that that type of leadership and the the, the things we're taught to chase as goals, money and wealth and power and titles, they are the natural byproducts that come from people who evaluate their leadership daily. Here is what I stand for. This is what I have to do to feel like I matter. Here are the behaviors consistent with that. And here is the evidence that I've actually lived up to those behaviors. And I wrote the book to one, let people know that that's what leadership is, and two, to give them a step-by-step process on where to start and how to stay committed to it.
1: Well, Drew, let me ask you this. If uh, you were a busy CEO, and you are of your own company, and as you grow an organization, and you talk about this increasingly frenzied and full-of-change environment we live in, and the demands on our time, and obviously leaders in particular have as much or more demands on their time. And I think the challenge is the balance of actually being available. I mean fully available in the moment. What advice would you have for leaders who are listening to this podcast about staying fully available to those people in need that need that moment, that need your loving touch or your, your consoling words or whatever it might be, Because a lot of people have rotating doors where people are coming in with their problems at work. What advice do you have for them?
2: That's a really great question. Uh, Because part of the book, a big part of the book, it talks about self-respect. And a huge part of self-respect is recognizing that you can't add value to anyone else's life until you've added enough value to your own. And so I hear what you're saying, but in many ways... I think that one of the best ways that you can be available for people when they need you is to recognize that you can't be available to people whenever they need you. Uh, you I don't know if that makes sense. It just means that there are times when you are not equipped, you know, physically or emotionally or psychologically to be there for other people all the time. I think being open to that and engaging in behaviors that mean that the vast majority of your time, you're gonna be able to do that. But I think that beating yourself up because you don't feel like you're always available for people, I think that that isn't the way we should do things. It is not a bad thing that you are not 100% available to 100% of the people all the time. But what I think is important for leaders to do is to engage in self-respect-filled behaviors that make sure that as much of your life as possible you are in a position to offer value to other people. And so if I was going to give, um, give a tip to a manager or a CEO or somebody really busy who's beating themselves up because they don't feel like they can give everything of themselves at every particular moment, I talk in the book about one of the most powerful features of leadership, which is forgiveness. You can't do that. But what you can do is ask yourself, are there things I can do for myself each day to better take care of my physical, psychological, and emotional health, to build my self-respect so that a bigger percentage of my life, I am present and I am available. But one of the first things you have to do to to establish that kind of, of emotional health is acknowledge that you are not a failure because you're not there all the time. And if you feel as if people are asking too much of you too much of the time, maybe the question is, Are you doing enough for yourself so that you feel like you have the strength, psychologically, emotionally, whatever the case may be, to be there for them? And otherwise though, forgive yourself if you can't do it all the time. And communicate with people about about that fact. Be open with them about that fact, that you care about them, but let's deal with this at a time where both of us are in a position where it's going to be beneficial to both of us. That's a hard question, but I think really at the core of it is this, even if you're in charge of an organization and there's a lot of people, it is not your job to be 100% available to 100% of the people all the time. You can only take care of other people when you have taken care of yourself. And trying to make yourself completely available at all times for every problem, uh, real, business, emotional, social, is just going to destroy you. And and so I that's a tough question.
1: Well, but that's I, where I go with. it. I do believe that you've answered and helped uh, individuals with the conundrum. I don't think the conundrum's going to stop because it's no. It's an issue of you know how do I balance my own life, balance my time for myself, but also provide the uh, caring, nurturing, and support of those employees, you know, the good leaders, as you know, uh, the servant leadership model is upside down, and it's where we're there to serve the others. Now, I kind of want to end this on a, on a note that you state that great leaders look for opportunities to live their values. What's the difference between, in your estimation as you talk in your TED Talk, just a good leader and a great leader?
2: Uh, yes, it's actually that good leaders, they, they seize on every opportunity to live their values. They live their values every time the opportunity presents itself. That's what a good leader does. Great leaders create opportunities to live their values. So a good leader, it would be someone who, when there's an opportunity to, when something is presented to them, an opportunity to be kind or an opportunity to be grateful. If uh, somebody right in front of them does something incredibly kind and they recognize that as leadership, hey, that's amazing, that's a good leader. What great leaders do is that they plan ahead to make sure that they're doing those things. So as opposed to, oh, wow, here's an opportunity that just presented itself for me to recognize uh, a leader in my organization, to tell someone who might think of themselves as just a receptionist or just middle management that you're so much more than that. And the way you do your job, when you see that opportunity and you seize it, that's good leadership. When you get up in the morning and you say, one of my key values is recognition, and I am going to make sure that I recognize someone today by this, or I'm going to identify this person and tell them, when you plan ahead to do it, because you don't feel fulfilled as a leader, if you don't, that's great leadership. The difference between seizing every opportunity you're presented with and creating opportunities to live your values, that's where the gap between good leaders and great leaders is formed.
1: Well, I will say drew that it's been a pleasure interviewing you and for my listeners out there. Um, the book is called this is day one. It's a practical guide to leadership that matters. Uh, drew Dudley is the author. You certainly can look this up on Amazon or any of your book sellers and drew, I know you're passionate about uh, cystic fibrosis and you've also got a link up at your website, uh, for something that you've formed uh, to help with that, um, where do you want us to direct people that might be listening to this that would like to either donate to that cause or get involved in some way as well as uh, help support you through the purchase of the book or obviously uh, book
2: you as a speaker? Ah, yes, without a doubt, we want to live the values of the book as we sell it. So we determine that as we move the book, We really want to make sure that we are – one of the key values in the book is empowerment. What have you done today to move someone else closer to a goal? And so we identified that we were going to support uh, Count Me In, an organization that empowers young leaders. And what you can do is you can add a small donation on top of any book purchase, even if it's a dollar, and I will match it dollar for dollar. You can find out all that information at drewdudley.com. That's D-R-E-W d-u-d-l-e-y dot com and if you follow me on Twitter uh, or Instagram and that's at day one drew and that's d-a-y-o-n-e so not the num- not the numeral but the actual word at day one drew on Instagram and uh, and Twitter you'll see these opportunities to link through you'll learn more about the things we're supporting and you get the opportunity to buy the book but if you go to drew Dudley you can find out how to read what I think or you can listen to me talk about it some more
1: well, awesome! And you also can go to his website. It's the Day One Fund. Learn more there. Um, like you said, impact is the core value. Um, put some more. Put your information in. Drew, a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. Spending a few minutes with our listeners to impart your wisdom. I think more importantly, not just about a leadership, but also just how you um, build your own self-esteem to identify yourself as a leader as well as taking that time every day to recognize those values within yourself that you'd like to reflect. Um, Really was fun having you on and I appreciate uh, the time you spent with our listeners.
2: Well, thank you so much, my friend. It was a real honor to be here.